Now we come to that portion of our service where God speaks to us through the reading and preaching of his word. Please stand for the reading of scripture from Revelation chapter 1. Our verse is verse 7. And we, I'm going to go ahead and read uh, verses 1 through 8. Uh, 8 really concludes uh, the, the section of the verse that I'm in. But we'll focus only on verse 7. Before I read God's word, let us ask his blessing upon it. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we pray for your grace that we might hide your word in our hearts so that we might not sin against you. Cause us, O God, to crave your word, to meditate on it, and cause it to bring forth fruit in our lives. May we see the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning and be changed. This we pray in His most holy name, amen. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Again, our focus will be on verse 7, but beginning in verse 1, we read, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You may be seated. The introduction of the book of Revelation that we've been looking at the past number of weeks has afforded us the opportunity to look at the major themes that we will find throughout the book. And thus far, we've looked at the themes of Revelation or of the apocalypse, of nearness, of blessing, of symbolism, of the the Trinity, of the Exodus or, or the second Exodus, of our conformity to Christ, and of doxology, or of worship. This morning, we will look at just one theme from verse 7, which happens to be the main theme of the whole letter of Revelation. And that theme is the coming of Christ. Of course, his coming in victory over the great dragon, but his theme of coming, the coming Christ. Now, this theme will help 
situate us in how we will move forward with the whole letter. Like when you go to build something or begin to build something, you must fix or situate it in a certain place or a position. Once you have that place, you can begin laying the foundation and build upon it. And since we are looking at the main theme of the book this morning, this sermon will situate us in that place from where we will build throughout the rest of the sermon series. Now, one of the things that can make the reading and studying of the book of Revelation so intimidating to us is, the, is that different commentators and scholars have so many different interpretations of the book. And the primary reason for the different interpretations is that they have different starting points for the book. They have different points of departure, we might say. In other words, they have situated their starting points, the place from where they will build, in different places. Where you start will determine, of course, where, but also how you will build, and therefore what your building will look like in the end. There are several different places where people begin constructing their interpretation of Revelation, but there are three primary starting points that different people will take. One point of departure is with the assumption that the book was primarily fulfilled in the early church. Those with this view will primarily interpret the visions and the events of the letter as those that deal with what was happening in the Apostle John's day and that which was to occur just after that, that which would happen in the early church. In other words, the content throughout this letter was all about them and not so much us. For those of you who benefit from putting terms to different views, this view, this point of departure is known as the preterist view. Now, a second point of departure that others take comes from the opposite end of the timeline. That is, many assume that this letter is all about some future time period that will take place right before Christ returns. And so these interpreters say that the letter is about those in the future, not necessarily about those in the past, and perhaps not even so much about us in the present, of course, depending upon when those events begin to take place. And those with this interpretation, simply known as the futurists. So there's the preterists and there's the futurists. Now, a third starting point or a third view that I want to discuss is called the idealist view. And their point of departure for the book is that its visions provide no specific historical events or fulfillments. Instead, they say, that the visions in this letter are merely presenting principles of spiritual warfare through symbolic imagery that will take place all throughout this age. And so the visions in the book do not depict any specific event, but present principles of spiritual warfare that will continually occur throughout this age. Now you're probably in your mind trying to figure out what starting point, what view 
we might take. You're probably also having a hard time trying to situate where we will land among these three points of departure. And the difficulty you're likely having is that we are not going to take any one of these starting points as our ultimate point of departure. And the reason we are not is because all of these views are wrong and right at the same time. Our starting point, for example, will reject many points within these views, but will simultaneously hold a certain points within each view. For example, we reject that this book is basically about the early church. We reject that it is basically about the church in the future just before Christ returns. And we also reject that it nearly depicts principles of spiritual warfare and not specific events in church history. Yet, we do believe it was about the early church. We do believe it is about the church of the future. And we do believe that it presents patterns that are repeated throughout this age. Therefore, our starting point is that it does present real historical fulfillments about the early church and about the future church, which will be present at Christ's return. And that these events are patterns that get repeated in the life of the church throughout this age. Now, some people call this the eclectic view because it eclectically takes points from all the other views. And some call it a modified idealist view. You can call it really whatever you want to call it. I tend to just call it the right view, uh, because, of course, we all think that our view is the right view. Now, some of you may hold to a different view than me, and that's okay. But if you will be patient and teachable... I think that you'll begin to see the truth to this view. And I think ultimately, even if we end still in different views, we will see the ultimate point of the book of Revelation. And that is that Christ will come in victory. Now, the goal as we move forward in our series in the book of Revelation is to not be quite as technical as we just were. But why did we just go through all of these views here in this sermon? Well, as I mentioned, the major theme throughout the book of Revelation is the coming of Christ. And so how are we going to deal with the coming of Christ? Was it something that was already fulfilled in the early church? That is how preterists, not all, but certainly uh, some preterists will interpret it. They will say that Christ has already returned and brought judgment against the Jews and destroyed the temple in A.D. 70. That was the return that the book of Revelation was referring to. And so for them, the book of Revelation has been fulfilled entirely. Again, not all preterists hold specifically to that, but certainly full preterists do. I will say this about that particular view, that aspect of that view. That, my friends, is heresy. The Apostle Paul himself indicates that it is heresy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 18. We may recognize a coming of Christ in the year 70 AD to bring judgment 
But that is not the only coming of Christ. There will be a final coming of Christ. And to teach against that is, as Paul says, heresy. And so there is a final coming of Christ. And so, on the other hand, opposed to preterists, will we treat the final Will we treat that theme of the coming of Christ as something that is only future, as the futurists do? And so that's the question. How are we going to handle this theme of the coming of Christ? And the answer is that there will indeed be a final coming of the Lord in the future to bring ultimate judgment. But Christ will also come in different ways all throughout this age, which actually did begin in the first century. And that is what we shall see throughout this book and even in our verse this morning. And so in this verse, verse 7, John, the Apostle John cites two Old Testament quotes. He cites from two Old Testament Old Testament quotations, one from Daniel and the other from Zechariah 12. And so let's take a look at each quote in turn, beginning with the quote from Daniel chapter 7. I invite all of you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel 7. The quotation's in verse 13, but we'll read 13 and 14 together. And I encourage you to follow along in your Bible if you have one present and are able to do so. I do believe it will be helpful. I think it would be helpful every Lord's Day and every sermon, but especially as we look at some of these quotations. Now, in these verses, Daniel has a vision of the enthronement of the Messiah to rule over the nations. And, of course, we've already seen this in the book of Revelation. Remember that John described Jesus Christ as the firstborn from among the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. He's been given authority and has been enthroned as the Messiah to rule over the nations, all the kings on earth. And so in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, we read, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, so Daniel sees in a vision the Son of Man. Who's that? Well, it's the Messiah in the flesh. And he sees him riding on the clouds of heaven coming to the ancient of days. Now, who's that? Well, that is God the Father. Now, the clouds of heaven that he speaks of are not natural clouds, but are the supernatural clouds of heaven. To be more specific, he is referring to the glory cloud, which appears all throughout the Old Testament wherever there is an appearance of God. Think about, for example, the cloud that descended upon Mount Sinai when God appeared before Israel. Now, this supernatural cloud, the glory cloud, is described in the Old Testament as being a cloud-like chariot. For example, in Psalm 104, verse 3, we read, He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. 
And so Daniel in the night visions saw the Son of Man, the Messiah, ride that cloud chariot up into heaven to appear before the Father, the Ancient of Days, to receive everlasting dominion over all the nations. Now, my friends, that was initially fulfilled at the ascension of Christ. Acts chapter 1 verse 9 says that as the disciples were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. That's when he ascended up to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, receiving dominion over heaven and earth. And so Daniel 7.13, which Revelation 1.7 quotes, was initially fulfilled in the ascension of Christ to heaven. Okay, turn with me now to the Zechariah 12 quotation. Zechariah 12, and we'll begin in verse 10. But as you turn there, it's important to note that uh, to note the context of Zechariah 12, that it is a prophecy concerning a time in Israel's history when God would redeem them. He would redeem Israel and would pour out upon them a spirit of grace and repentance, or a spirit of mourning, a mourning over sins, a, a spirit of mourning, repentance, and would cleanse them from their sins, causing them to mourn over their sins. Sins, And so look with me at Zechariah chapter 12, beginning in verse 10. It says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And then look down to chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Now, it is very clear that the one that they pierced is Jesus himself. And Zechariah is saying that Israel will look upon him whom they have pierced, and will mourn over him in a state of repentance, which results in what? In what? In their sins being cleansed through the fountain opened up for them on that day. Now, beloved, the Gospel of John, the same author of the book of Revelation, who writes... His own gospel, the gospel of John, affirms that this was initially fulfilled at the death of Christ. In John chapter 19, you can turn there if you like. John chapter 19, verses 34 through 37, here's what we read. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now there's the piercing of Christ. And the blood and water which flowed from his side was what? The fountain opened up for cleansing. Verse 35 continues, saying, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. 
For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, and here's Zechariah 12.10. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And so the gospel of John is telling us that Zechariah 12 was initially fulfilled at the cross. Even more, beloved. The gospel of Mark, I believe the gospel of Luke does as well. The gospel of Mark tells us that the soldier himself, the centurion who pierced Jesus' side, came to repentance saying, truly this man was the son of God. Mark 15, 39. So you have the one who pierced him himself mourning. Over the one who repents and turns to the Lord, mourning over the one whom he pierced. And so, both Daniel 7.13 and Zechariah 12.10 have already initially been fulfilled. So then, why does John quote these texts in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7? Well, John uses these texts to speak of their ultimate fulfillment, their final fulfillment. In other words, John doesn't quote these prophecies to describe when they were inaugurated and initially fulfilled, but to describe when they will be consummated, finally or ultimately fulfilled. And and so he certainly has the future in mind, which really is easily enough discerned. From the future tense of the verbs here in verse 7. Every eye will see him. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And so John certainly believes these verses will be fulfilled sometime after the writing of his letter. But I want you to notice what John does with the Zechariah text. Not only does he place its fulfillment at some point in the future from his writing, but he also universalizes it. In Zechariah chapter 12, the Jews would look on him whom they pierce and would mourn in penitential grief and be cleansed. But in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7, every eye will see all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Not all the tribes of Israel, but all the tribes of the earth. And so John universalizes this prophecy, which helps us to see that John did indeed have in mind the final coming of Christ. A time when every eye will see. John is informing us that when Christ comes on the final day, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth, whether Jew or Gentile, will wail on account of him, on account of Christ. And this wailing is, again, a mourning over sins. It's a penitential grief over one's sins. Well then, When is this being fulfilled? Well, it is being fulfilled all throughout this age. 
Every time someone's eyes are opened by the Holy Spirit to see their sins, they realize that they, because of their sins, are the ones who caused their Savior to be pierced. And thus they mourn over their sins, which caused him to be pierced. And in doing so, they are washed in the fountain of his cleansing blood. You see, beloved, through the preaching of the gospel, Christ is presented before our eyes as Savior, who was pierced because of our sins. Through the preaching of the gospel, Christ is presented before our eyes as Lord, having ascended to receive the kingdom from the Father and to reign forever at his right hand. And so every eye, not just the Jews, but the eyes of all of God's elect, whether Jew or Gentile, will see him. They will mourn over him. And this is occurring all throughout this age and will be complete when the last of God's elect turns to him in repentance. Do you see, beloved, how this verse was fulfilled in the past at the death? In the resurrection and ascension. How it will be fulfilled when Christ returns to consummate his kingdom. And how it is also being fulfilled all throughout this age. Now, John, of course, saw this vision. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit as he wrote. But he also learned these very things from the Lord himself during Jesus' ministry. You see, Jesus taught on this very thing, and Jesus also combined both Daniel 7.13 and Zechariah 12.10 to speak about his final coming. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 29. He says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Now here's our two Old Testament quotes. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one heaven, from one end of heaven to the other. Now it seems clear enough that Jesus is talking about his final coming. But a Praterist would tell you that Matthew 24 is primarily about the judgment in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. And therefore, they'll, they'll tell you that Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12 was ultimately fulfilled in the early church. Well, the preterists actually make a good point here. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus does refer several times all throughout that chapter to the judgment that he brought against them in the year 70 A.D. But it is very clear that he's referring in the verses just quoted to his final return. How do we know this? Well, because of the way Jesus himself universalizes that Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah. And that's what the preterists fail to account for. They only see Israel mourning, not over their sins, but over their judgment that comes to them in the year 70 A.D. 
But this does not account for Jesus' universalization of this text. It's not just Israel. It's all the tribes of the earth who will mourn. And so we have to then ask the question, well, does Jesus really misapply Zechariah 12.10 when he universalizes it? No, actually, Jesus and the Apostle John after him saw its fuller meaning. He saw Zechariah 12's fuller meaning. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul can help us with this. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 6 that the church, which is made up of both Jew and Gentile, that the church is the Israel of God. And that's how Jesus can universalize it. Because we, the church, made up of Jew and Gentile, together are the Israel of God. Israel will mourn over her sins. The church will mourn over her sins that caused her Savior to be pierced. And so, of course, Jesus is not ultimately referring to the judgment in 70 AD, but rather to his final coming. But why then does Jesus even speak of the judgment in 70 AD throughout that chapter, throughout Matthew 24? Well, he does because Jesus would come, in a sense, in judgment in the year 70 AD. But that was not the end of the world as we know it. Nevertheless, it was a foreshadowing of the way that the world would end. I've heard Dr. Lane Tipton put it this way in the past. The judgment in 70 AD was not the end of the world, but it is the way the world will end. And so the judgment and the destruction of the temple there in 70 AD, it's a good description of what things will be like at Christ's final coming. And this is what both Jesus and John have in their minds. Ultimately, when they quote from Daniel and Zechariah, they have the final coming of Jesus in mind. Beloved, Christ has come. He will one day come in a final appearance, but he is continually coming throughout this age. I think Dr. Greg Beale puts it very well in his commentary, when he speaks of this verse, verse 7, he says, Christ's coming, in chapter 1, verse 7, is understood better as a process occurring throughout history. The so-called second coming is actually a final coming, concluding the whole process of comings. And Bill concludes that, in Daniel seven thirteen. The coming of the Son of Man indicates primarily his reception of authority to exercise end-time kingship over this world. And this is understood in Revelation 1-7 to have the beginning of its fulfillment at Christ's resurrection and to continue fulfillment until the Son of Man's last coming at the end of history. End quote. In other words, what he's saying is that, yes, it was initially fulfilled at the death and resurrection of Christ, his ascension up to heaven. He is now ruling over all things. He has dominion over all things. And so his coming 
to receive authority was the initial beginning, but he has continual comings all throughout this age until his final coming to bring ultimate judgment and to bring with him the new heavens and the new earth. Beloved, we will see when we get into chapters 2 and 3 that when Jesus speaks to the seven churches, he often tells them to repent. And if they, re- they repent, he will come to them in blessing. But if they do not repent, then he will come to them in judgment. Now, obviously, he would not come to them bodily. Bodily, he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But nevertheless, he did promise to come to them in some way. And so to give one example, he says to the church in Ephesus, Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. You see, my friends, Christ has ascended bodily to the right hand of God in heaven, but he is not absent here below. He comes and visits his church. Sometimes he comes in judgment. Beloved, he came in judgment against the church at Ephesus. They must have initially repented because the church was actually quite strong there for some time throughout the early church. But the church in Ephesus, beloved, no longer remains. Christ eventually came and removed their lampstand in judgment against them. Make no mistake about it. There will be a final coming of the Lord. But he continually comes to visit his people. Sometimes it is in judgment. He did indeed come in 70 AD to judge the unbelieving Jews. And he will come to bring judgment at times. But he also comes, beloved, to bring blessing. He comes to bring blessing to those who repent and trust in him. To the church in Laodicea, he promised to come and bless those who repented. He said, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and answers the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. You see, beloved, to those who see the risen and ascended Lord through the preaching of the gospel and who mourn over their sins, the sins that cause their Lord to be pierced, to those he comes and he gives great blessing. If you know not the Lord today, if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, please know what the great hymn promises. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. 
Trust in Christ before it is too late. Repent while there is still time. For either you will see him now, mourn for your sins, and receive the blessing of his comforting presence. Or you will see him at his final coming, will be judged for your sins, and will receive the curse of eternal damnation. Behold, he is coming, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. This will come to pass, beloved. For it is sealed here at the end of the verse with a double oath. Even so, amen. Which is essentially stating the very same thing but twice. Even so is from the Greek meaning assuredly, assuredly so. And amen is from the Hebrew meaning so let it be done. Behold, he is coming. Assuredly so. Amen. To him be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Our most gracious God and Father, we pray that you would continue to present before us Jesus Christ, crucified and raised, that we might see him. And mourn over our sins. Mourn over him who was pierced for our sins. And Lord, we pray that we would live a continual life of faith and repentance. For you speak to us now as you did to those seven churches and you call us. To repent. You, you see the good works that are being done as well, but you also call us to repent. For we are not perfect. We pray that you would indeed be working in our hearts to bring us to repentance. That we might not receive any temporal judgment and certainly not eternal judgment, but so that we would be refreshed in your presence And be blessed with all the saving graces accomplished by Christ. Applied by your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.